So we're continuing our series in 2 Peter, and we're coming now to the end. We only have uh, two more weeks. We'll look at the passage that Steve just read this morning, and then we will look at the final words, verses 11 through 18 next week. And then, like Paul said, we will be uh, teaching on baptism. Really excited that we have the opportunity to do a baptism service. More information on that uh, later. Uh, But uh, if we can kind of recap a little bit of where we are in 2 Peter... Peter is uh, presenting now kind of the main issue that he's been working toward this entire letter. And the main issue here was to confront the false teaching that was happening in the churches to whom he is is dressing. Now, uh, if you were here for the previous series, when we did 1 Peter, we saw that the challenge in 1 Peter was from outside the church. It was persecution and suffering from outside the church. And Peter's exhortation to them was uh, how they can remain faithful in those challenges. Second, Peter, he was dealing with another challenge that the church faces, and that is false teaching from within the church. And we just saw in chapter two, Peter gave us his uh, opinion, the Lord's opinion of the false teachers. And now I believe we're getting to chapter three. We're now getting to kind of, I think, the content of that false, that false teaching. So he's really presenting this issue uh, to them now in this letter. And he's doing it with a very strong impassioned appeal. Impassioned appeal. Um, notice the beloved in verse 1. We saw it again. Verse 8. That in the context of this denunciation of the false teachers all through chapter 2. And, and note, remember the really harsh words there. Notice the accursed children. It said in chapter two, this all springs from his deep heartfelt love and emotion and his affection for them. He's impassioned because of the danger that this presents to them and his heart broken at the demise that would come to them if they follow these false teachings. So that's what Peter's addressing here. So we're going to look at this. This is Peter's impassioned appeal. And this is the second letter that he's written. Notice he says this is the second letter. There's some debate on which that one is. Is it a lost letter? Is it something else? Is it Jude? Is it, I I think it's 1 Peter. We'll just call it that. And he's doing this by way of reminder. He's desperate to communicate this to them. Because remember, look back at chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He knows that the putting off of his body is going to be soon. Because the Lord Jesus had made it clear to him. And he said, I will make every effort after my departure. It's kind of code there for his death after my departure so that you will be able at any time to remember these things. And now he's getting to these things. So this is his impassioned appeal to them. And it's in two parts. Two parts. First one is Peter's impassioned appeal to reject the scoffers, pessimism and reasoning. Peter's impassioned appeal to reject the scoffers, pessimism, and reasoning. Okay, who is this? Verse 3. Knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own evil desires. This is where I think he's connecting to the false teachers of chapter 2. What are scoffers? Those who who would mock, who would laugh, who point and deride. And in this context, it's those who would be mocking and laughing and pointing and deriding the teaching of the apostles, like Peter, 
or Paul? What is it that they're scoffing? We see the what that they are scoffing in verse 4. They will say, and I love how Peter gives a quote from them. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. What are they scoffing is the second coming of Christ. This is the main kind of theological theme of chapter 3. The second coming of Christ or the return of Christ. And there's three things here. The return of Christ and then there's two implications that are connected to this that they're scoffing. They're, first of all, they're, they're scoffing at the return of Christ, which the return of Christ, remember, has been predicted by the prophets. Christ's uh, coming was a fulfillment of Old Testament uh, instruction, but the Old Testament also speaks of the final coming when he will come to judge the world. We'll get to, into that here in a moment. It was predicted by the prophets. It was promised by Christ himself. I love this passage in John 14. There's many places where Jesus talked about he was going to come again. But this one is a very encouraging one, and very, especially for very difficult days and difficult times. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, uh, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. The return of Christ is what they're scoffing. And what they're scoffing goes against what is predicted by the prophets, what was promised by Christ himself. Jesus' return will be, and I can't get into it a great deal here, we will probably hear in, this, in the future, but if I could summarize, it will be personal. Jesus himself will come. It's not going to be kind of a spirit of Jesus or a spirit of Christ. It will be Jesus himself. It will be visible. We will actually see his return. It will be sudden and unexpected. We're going to see that here in a moment. And it will be glorious. But here's some other implications that are derived from mocking the return of Christ. And that is this. It's also scoffing at the rescue of the faithful. Because the rescue of the faithful is connected to Christ's return. We see that a little bit in the passage that we just read in John chapter 14. But let me give you a handful of other passages that speak to this issue. I'll give you six. There's more. I crossed a bunch out because I uh, wanted to make sure we didn't go past lunch. Here they, here they are. 1 Corinthians 15. And this is the context of the Apostle Paul talking about the resurrection of Christ and how it's connected to the resurrection of believers. And he says these words. But each in its own order. Christ, the first fruits, meaning Christ has to be raised first. As the first fruits, the first gleaning from the harvest. And then at his coming, notice the connection there. At his coming, those who belong to Christ. Your, the promise of your resurrection and your union with Christ happens at his coming. Or Colossians 3. When Christ, who is your life, appears, he's talking about his coming, then you will also appear with him in glory. Henceforth, Paul tells Timothy, 
Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, the day of his coming, and not also to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You love his appearing? Then on that day, you get the crown of righteousness for the faithful. Here's a couple of more. Hebrews chapter 9. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. He did that the first time. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. To what? Come back. Peter even says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then in 1 John chapter 3, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This by implication is what the scoffers are scoffing at when it's talking about Christ's return. And believers, as believers, we, we rejoice. We look forward to his second coming because what that means, it, it means our rescue, ultimately. But there's a third implication is, is that this is also a denial of the retribution on the wicked of the world. When the scoffers are scoffing at Christ's coming, they are also scoffing at the final judgment against all evil and wickedness in the world. The final judgment of all wickedness that has ever happened in the world is connected to Christ's coming. So to deny Christ's coming, as he says, is a functional denial that God's justice will be finally administered in the last day. And that this will come through Jesus. Wait, Jesus is going to be judged? Yes. You often hear, well, Jesus doesn't judge people. When I hear that, if you've seen that on Facebook, you know, the, the most famous verse in the Bible was Matthew 7, right? <laughs> Do not judge. Because Jesus doesn't judge. And I would say, and I say that to, to when people say, well, Jesus doesn't judge. I say, well, he didn't judge the first time, but he will when he comes back. This is, this is the biblical story. Notice what Paul says in Acts 17 at the Areopagus. Because God has, he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who's that man? Well, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That man is Jesus. So this is what the scoffers are denying. I wanted to kind of flesh that out a little bit here to say when they're scoffing that uh, Christ's return, this, he's scoff, they're scoffing everything that's connected to that. And so Peter is impassioned, his impassioned appeal is for, for them and for us to reject their pessimism and their, their reasoning behind that. Why must we reject it? Well, a couple of things. First, um, there's precedent in Israel's history. There's precedent in Israel's history why these scoffers uh, should be rejected. Notice verses 5 and, and, and 6. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, 
and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Notice the water, then water, the water, out of water, through water, deluged with water. What is this referring to? This is referring to the story in Genesis, chapter 6 through 9, about Noah and the flood. Peter likes Noah, by the way. Have you noticed this? Like Peter's, like in 1 Peter chapter 3, he talked about, yeah, so yeah like Noah. It's kind of like that when he's rescued in the ark. And, and then even in the last chapter, chapter 2, verse 5, he mentions Noah, right? If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah. And now he's referring here again to Noah again. So Peter, for some reason, that's his favorite Old Testament story, I guess. So it's referring to the flood. It's referring to what happened. There's precedent in Israel's history that God will judge. And what's interesting is at the end of that story, God makes a covenant. A lot of us remember the story from Sunday school class. We remember the flood and the dove and everything like that. But what's key at the very end of that is the covenant that God makes with Noah it's called the Noahic Covenant. And he makes this promise. He says this, I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then he gives them the sign, right? Which is, what is that? The rainbow, right? It's the sign of that covenant between me and you and every living creature. And then he goes on. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now, so when you see the rainbow as this kind of promise, and this is what they think that this is, this rainbow, um, do not read this as, boy, that's God's promise to not, to not destroy the world at all. That's not what it says. This is God's promise that he's not going to destroy the world that way, with water. He's not going to destroy the world with water. Instead, he's going to destroy the world with something else. And this is what we see the second uh, thing. is Not only is there a precedent in Israel's history connecting it to the flood, Peter goes on to say uh, what he's summarizing what the Old Testament prophets are saying about the second coming. And so it's not just the precedent of Israel's history, but this is the predictions from Israel's prophets in verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is really important. He's summarizing here a teaching that's all throughout uh, uh, through the Old Testament prophets. Let me give you several of them. Here's Isaiah chapter um, 66. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. That's Isaiah. Daniel chapter 7. The vision, remember the vision of seeing the Son of Man in the Ancient of Days? Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair and his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Or Malachi, give you, give you one more here from, from Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 talks about the forerunner of, 
of Christ, John the Baptist, in chapter 3, verse 1. But then notice what it says after those days. In chapter 4, he says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. Peter's summarizing right here that here and in a handful of other passages, the prediction that when the Lord comes at the last day, what it will be like. John the Baptist affirms this when he speaks about the one who is coming after him. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the, the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus tells a parable to talk about what it would be like on the end, that last day. And he talks about, tells a, a parable about an enemy who comes and sows weeds into a, a farmer's field. And so he has wheat and weeds growing up. And his servants are like, what do, what do we do? Do we go and tear out the weeds? An enemy has done this. And he says, no, no, no. Let them bro both, the, the, wheat, the weeds and the wheat, let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time... I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus continuing that teaching of what that last day is going to be like. It's not going to be done with water. It's going to be done with fire. Or first Thessalonians chapter Second uh, Thessalonians, excuse me, chapter one, verse seven, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And that's how Peter ends this passage, even in uh, chapter uh, three, verse 10. The heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved. And if I could tiptoe a little bit into the next passage, he kind of reiterates these things. All these things are to be dissolved. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. I think you get the idea. I was texting back and forth with Steve and the Lutheran. You guys remember the Lutheran? They live in California now. Um, Lutheran pastor friend of mine and we were texting back and forth and I'm not even sure I should have gone back and looked at the whole conversation but we were talking about the rainbow and um, and the promise you know because rainbow have you seen rainbows around anywhere so but the rainbow and it kind of symbolized this and that like the flood and, and I and I texted back in emojis and I said this hey the rainbow means no more water to destroy the world but fire <laughs> I thought that was a really good summary so that's what the rainbow means. So have you ever wondered this? You've ever wondered, wait, so the judgment, the Lord promised he's not going to judge the world uh, anymore. No, he's not going to destroy it by water. But all the prophets speaking the very words of the Lord come and say, no, God has told us that it's going to come through, through fire. And this is what P Peter uh, is summarizing here in verse 7. They're stored up for fire, the present heavens and the earth. So we have Peter's impassioned appeal to reject the scoffer's pessimism about Christ's return, to reject the entire rationality for it. And the rationality is, hey, if it hasn't happened by now, it's probably not going to happen. Right? If it hasn't happened by now, 
Peter's writing this, it's maybe right, A.D. 65, A.D. 66, A.D. 67. Well, Jesus was, was crucified and ascended, in, we're guessing, our, I think the most accurate estimate is A.D. 33. It's been over 30 years. Can you imagine, like, you could kind of understand a little bit, like 30 years you could have been talking about Christ's return and it hasn't happened yet. Ah. And these are people, I think, because of the context, these are people in the church. And Peter is desperate to convey to them, no, no, we have on good authority. We have precedent in Israel's history. We have the predictions of the prophets. And so we have to reject this pessimism. And so now he gets to the second part. Here's the second part uh, that he's addressing here. Not only do we reject the scoffer's pessimism and reasoning, we are to remember the Savior's patience and return. Remember the Savior's patience and return. Verses 8 through 10. We'll look at the Savior's patience first. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. There's the beloved again. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is our, our Savior's patience here. Notice that the scoffers overlooked a fact in verse 5, and they did so deliberately. Peter says that we, on the other hand, are to deliberately not overlook this, this fact. And that is this. The Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. I think it's so helpful at this point, and you've heard me talk about this before, but it's helpful at this point to remember the distinction between the creator and the creature. The creator and all of creation. That creator-creature distinction is so important. God is not a bigger version of us. We are contingent, dependent beings. We live in this creation that he has made. God doesn't need the creation. He existed before it. So it's helpful to think of that because days and years are creation. It's embedded to the created order. What makes a day a day? What makes a month a month? The moon. What makes a year a year? Right? But from God's perspective, there is no delay. For us, maybe there's a delay. Where is he? He should have been here by now. Right? But from God's perspective, he's never late. He's never behind. The scripture says that he knows the end from the beginning. He's always on time. And so that means... Peter concludes from in verse nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. They count slowness one way, but the Lord is not slow in counting his promise because he knows perfectly and precisely the proper time and the proper method. He knows perfectly and precisely the when and the how in his perfect wisdom. So there's a sense in which God is patient in that way, but I think there's more to it here. God is also patient in another sense. Verse, 
the second half of verse 9, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is one of the key attributes of God here. God's patience or the good old fashioned. I mean, you grew up with the King James Bible, like long suffering. Yeah. The long suffering ness of God. Key, key verse for this. Uh, Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, where the Lord reveals himself. There's only a handful of places where where God says uh, somebody's name twice. You know, like Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, etc. But there's one place where he mentions his own name twice. And it's this passage. This great revelation of himself. Where it says the Lord passed before Moses as he's on Mount Sinai. And he, and he proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Love that? Slow to anger, his patience. The Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew uh, here is, I'm not going to make you say it. Janet, I'm not going to make him say it. But the Hebrew here, I'll just give you what the, what it, it, the literal words are. It means long of nose. I love the Hebraic kind of the, the way of phrasing things. Their, their word for patience would be, well, he's long nosed. He's got a really long nose, you know, whereas being angry was hot of nose. It's kind of you've, you've seen anybody really angry. It's like, oh, man, look at your nose. This is hot. This is long of nose is patience. And then this is this. This revelation here in Exodus 34 becomes the foundation for so many of the promises, especially in the Psalms, when they're speaking about God's covenantal love for his people. Listen, what it, like it says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. They're just quoting back Exodus 34 back to God in prayer. The Lord is merciful and gracious, long of nose and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is gracious, gracious and merciful, long in nose and abounding in steadfast love. Isn't it a great picture? The human side of this equation also uses uh, very earthy kind of terms and language. And that is stiff of neck. Right? Stiff of neck. You ever, you know, had, have you ever tried to like feed a baby something and they don't want like, just to say, are you? Or like if Janet tries to have me taste the oatmeal, I'm like, oh, st stiff of neck. <laughs> what a great picture. But here's what that means. It means obstinate. What you guys talking about my the meatloaf thing? No, I'm about oh, that too. Any gourd, any gourd. Gourds are off limits. You want a piece of this pumpkin pie? No, gourd. I don't do the gourd. Stiff of neck. You want to see me stiff of neck? Feed me a gourd. But this is what it is. Obstinate, rebellious, stubborn. And this one, unrepentant. Unrepentant. What does, what does long of nose mean? I love what Calvin says of this passage in Exodus 34. He says of God, God is, he's not, he's not, uh, uh, placable and he he's not only uh play is it placeable placable placeable he's not only placeable and ready and disposed to to pardon 
but that he patiently waits for those who have sinned and invites them to repentance by his long-suffering. For this reason, he is called slow to anger. God patiently waits to pardon you who have sinned. Long of nose means he invites, he invites you to repent. Here's a couple of more passages that speak, uh, speak to this. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And here's the more the positive side of this patience of God, this attribute of God's patience. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his what? Perfect patience as an example to those who were able to believe in him for eternal life. Here's a, here's a negative side to this. Something that we should heed and be cautious of. Paul also, writing in Romans chapter 2, he says, or do you presume, look at that word, presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, do you, do you presume on God's patience? Do you think I'll, I'll repent later? And in particular here, I'm thinking of those who, who, who have not made that decision for Christ. Maybe you've not surrendered your life to him as your savior. Maybe you've grown up as a Christ, in a Christian home and think, okay, this, but, but have you kind of really forestalled truly repenting and turning to him? You know what that is? That's presumption. That's presumption on God being long of nose. He continues, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You have a savings account, retirement account. Are you storing things up? Uh, maybe you're into like canning foods and you're storing. We have tons of canned food in our basement. We're storing all of these things up. He says the longer you stay, if you presume with stiff of neck, presume upon the long sufferingness of God, you're just storing up wrath. This is what the scoffers were undermining. This is what the scoffers are saying. God's, God's late. Peter says, God's not late. He's always on time. And this, God is not late. He's always on time. And his tardiness, his tardiness is actually a good thing. It means you still have time. It means you still have time to repent. The Lord is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
The men have been studying the, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, and there's a whole chapter on repentance. Let me read a couple of sections from it. God has mercifully, mercifully provided in the covenant of grace that believers who sin and fall will be renewed through repentance to salvation. Saving repentance is a gospel grace in which those who are made aware by the Holy Spirit of the many evils of their sin by faith in Christ humble themselves for it with godly sorrow and hatred of it. It goes on. They pray for pardon and strength of grace and determine and endeavor by provisions from the Spirit to live before God in a well-pleasing way in everything. Why preach this? This is not a popular thing to preach today. But it must be preached. Why preach this? Why, why does Peter preach this? Why do I preach this? The same reason... Peter preached this to a group of Christians millennia ago. That even believers need this after all. Why is preaching of faith and repentance necessary? Again, back to this London Baptist Confession of Faith. I love this line. There is no sin so small that it is undeserving of damnation. Yet there is no sin so great that it, can't, that it will bring damnation on those who repent. There's no sin sm so small that it is undeserving of damnation. Yet there is no sin so great that it will bring damnation on those who repent. That's how thoroughly cleansing the blood of Christ is to all who would turn to him. This, they say, makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. Remember the Savior's patience so that the people that he calls to himself will hear his voice and repent and believe. So we not only need to remember our Savior's patience, we need to remember our Savior's return, which is how Peter ends here. But the day, okay, the last thing, you remember, keep in mind God's patience, but then also keep in mind his return. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Okay, this is the term for the second coming. And it will come like a thief. This is the sudden and unexpected part. This is following on from the teaching that Peter himself had just heard from his own, his own rabbi, his own teacher, and his own master. From Matthew chapter 24. When he uses this, kind of, this little story. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's going to come like a thief, Peter says. So in other words, remember the Savior's patience, but also remember the Savior's return. Which is to say... Don't wait until it's too late. He's not going to hold out forever. The passage that we read in Exodus chapter 34, right after it says he will steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, but by no means will clear the guilty, visiting iniquity on the father of the children and the children's gender to the third generation. 
Or like this from Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, long and knows, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Jesus says of his followers, he calls them my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they hear my voice and they'll follow me. Friends, have you heard the voice of Jesus? Is Kids, have you heard the voice of Jesus? Is he your shepherd? Are you his sheep? Have you heard his voice? Then don't delay. The Holy Spirit says today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Exhort one another every day as long as it is today. Today is that day of salvation. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, with overwhelming gratitude in, heart, gratitude in our hearts, are so grateful for your word. We thank you for the way you stirred up Peter's heart. And that even in his final days and final moments, he by your spirit was penning these words to to that particular church or group of churches to caution them of those who were scoffing at the return of your son Jesus God may we hear those words that Peter wrote not just to them but as they rightfully are words to us May we in this day and age reject the, the rationale and pessimism that the this, this scoffers had. And may we remember your patience, your long-suffering. May we remember that knowing that this is Truly an opportunity for those who have not finally said they will trust in you, that they will do so. And we're grateful for your return and all that means to those who are called by your name. And how we will be rescued and given crowns of righteousness and in glory with you. God, so we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of the glory in the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And may these truths spur us on to greater and greater faithfulness in this world. We ask that by your spirit, you would do that in and through us. 
And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Brothers and sisters, let's stand for our our closing benediction. Um, Reminder to to pray for the the prayer requests that are listed in the handout. If you didn't get one, please pick one up. Um, And reminder also that the offering box is over here uh, on the side. And uh, and as always, if if there's things that you would like to, um, if you have questions, there's questions that you'd have or anything that you would like prayer for, uh, just please come on up here to the front. I'd be glad to to pray with you. And so now hear um, this word of benediction to all of you as as we go. Brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. And also with you. Thank you.